the circumstances, as tragic as they've been to this point, when you talk about destruction of certain communities and small businesses that have closed and all of these things that have happened, the reality is we have the ability to reverse that. In this episode, I sit down with John Smith, former deputy director of the Office of American Innovation, and Chris Pilkerton, former acting head of the Small Business Administration, both under Trump. They are co-authors of Underserved, Harnessing the Principles of Lincoln's Vision for Reconstruction for Today's Forgotten Communities. We haven't really felt a gap on how do we bring those individuals into jobs in the 21st century that pay a living wage and let them pursue the American dream. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. John Smith, Chris Pilkerton, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Well, welcome. And John, it's, it's great to have you back. Um, I think the last time we interviewed, you were actually heading up the Office of American Innovation and the Trump administration, some remarkable work done there. Um, you guys have written a fascinating book. You chart the vision that Lincoln had for Reconstruction after the Civil War. And you argue that this is something that ended up being rather incomplete. So why don't we just jump in with that? Sure. So, yes, it was incomplete, mostly because um, President Lincoln got assassinated. Uh, and the person who took over, um, who was his vice president, who became president, um, didn't actualize his vision. He actually went in a different direction. You know, Lincoln had a, a vision um, for bringing the country together, um, having a plan um, for poor blacks and poor, poor whites, um, and reimagining America. He was really thinking about how can we use this opportunity to really bring our country together um, versus uh, Johnson, who um, had his own issues um, growing up in the South, um, used it as a um, political opportunity to um, grant pardons um, to Southern leaders um, and set up the tentacles of what ended up being became Jim Crow. And so um, post-Civil War, um, you know, a new America emerged um, and we never really dealt with some of the issues um, related to the, to the Negro, um, except for when Grant, of course, took over. Um, but we're, we're talking about immediately after mm -hmm. uh, when, when Lincoln passed away. Maybe uh, you could tell me about some of those some of those issues. So, so when I think about Lincoln um, and sort of his vision, it all started from his youth, right? I mean, he was, he grew up in a prairie, wasn't educated, everyone's heard the stories about all the books that he's read, but the reality was that he was fighting for folks like him when he was running for Congress and running for elected positions. When he actually went through the Civil War, he saw this as an opportunity to reconstruct America, to bring economic opportunity for all. Um, in one of his early campaigns, he talks about this. It's probably the equivalent of the shining city on the hill, but he called it Huron. It wasn't a real place, but it was a place where there was gonna be bustling labor and market activity and, and what have you. And that was sort of his vision as he continued down the road. Um, and as John was saying, President Johnson, when he took over, you know, there was a lot of baggage, so to speak, that President Johnson brought to that office. And if it wasn't for people like Thaddeus Stevens and others who really held Johnson's feet to the fire, overturned vetoes, then even you know, the, the, the movement, the positive movement that happened during Reconstruction wouldn't have happened because essentially Stevens was reverting back um, to the Southern Democrat you know, that he, he and many of his colleagues were. 
after we had this reconstruction period, um, you had this whole period of uh, Jim Crow um, in the South where you had um, African-Americans um, who never fully got their rights, you know, had things like poll taxes. Um, you still had a, um, a robust amount of uh, lynchings um, in the South. Um, a number of different things that, um, because they weren't intentionally set straight in the beginning, um, right after Reconstruction. Um, and it took a uh, civil rights movement um, to finally kind of uh, give those individuals their, their rights as citizens and us having to participate in a forced integration um, as a country. Um, but still, um, to Chris's point earlier, um, there wasn't a huge focus on the economic piece um, related to um, um, American citizenship, um, the, 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 the opportunity piece um, that we think is so vital. Um, and as we uh, moved through the 70s and the 80s and uh, started to be at the end of the industrial um, movement, um, labor has changed um, in a major way. You know, um, the type of blue-collar jobs that um, pushed people into the middle class in the uh, 30s, 40s, um, 50s um, started to go overway, um, go away, go overseas. And so um, that brings us into where we are now. We've been in an in in area where um, economic mobility has continued to um, widen um, for um, middle-class and low-income individuals um, because we haven't really felt the gap on how do we bring those individuals into jobs of the 21st century that pay a living wage um, and, and, and let them pursue the American dream. So I just want to touch on this. I've, been, I've learned a lot over the last few years about um, the impact of certain policies on the family and the sort you know, you could call it like the destruction of the family, especially in the black community. There's very huge number of households which are single parent households. And as we, as I've also learned, uh, coming from a, let's say a nuclear family household, increases your likelihood of success dramatically. In fact, it, it, it's one of these very few things which everybody, which everybody agrees on. So it seems like it was this perfect storm almost, right? Where you had, uh, I mean, a, ne a negative perfect storm where you had on the one hand you had globalization and deindustrialization. At the same time, you had this, these policies that kind of hurt the family unit dramatically. And then so you end up with these underserved communities, both black and white, actually, and now, now competing. And this you know, wealth gap larger and the mobility being very, very restricted, right? And then we just had a series of policies implemented related to the pandemic, which seems, I mean, were economically devastating. And in particular affecting those communities the most, right, on top of everything else. So it, it feels like we're in a very dark place. It is. Um, I think that I, I will also, also offer some hope, mm -hmm. um, which we tried to um, hope cut through um, the book. Um, me and Chris both having uh, um, Christian backgrounds, which um, has helped us be resilient and also um, shed a light on uh, um, a shining star or a north star for us to kind of work towards um, with service. Um, it's, it's, it's the future of our country is being able to harness our most important asset, which is people. Um, and um, where we are is a, a, a darker place, um, but we didn't get here overnight. Um, and it's a combination of a number of things. Um, there has been um, erosion of um, civil society probably over the last hundred years. Um, and one, uh, um, uh, one important institution that's eroded 
um, in many communities has been the church, you know, or the faith community. Um, at the same time, we also had a shift um, and, and encouragement um, from the government with certain um, policies that um, may have encouraged lower income people not to get married. And so if you, if you have the erosion of um, you know, uh, particular institutions that encourage marriage at the same time incentives by the government and then at the same time um, less incentives to work or to, to be able to charge you on, on, on course, course, it created a powder keg. Um, if you layer on top of that um, certain, certain things like um, the, um, uh, more drugs being in the community, you know, um, more crime, um, then you really have a, a strong powder crap on um, powder keg of a, of a lot of explosive activities happening to the detriment of human beings. Um, and I think that um, in fixing that issue over the last 40 years, we've kicked a can, kicked a can on like, okay, we're going to study this first, we're going to study that second, and then not really um, focus on a, on a solution. We maybe demonized certain populations and sent them to prisons for um, drug abuse. You know, um, we, instead of creating um, uh, institutions that could deal with the mental health piece, we got rid, rid of our mental health institutions. Instead of trying to fix them in a way that can right-size the, the issues that were wrong with them in the first place. Um, and, um, and then we also had that economic mobility widen, where there was less job, less diamondism. Um, and then we had pockets of America where you saw the tale of two cities. You know, um, you saw a, a very vibrant New York, but you also saw underclass New York. You saw a vibrant Detroit, but you saw underclass Detroit. Um, and uh, now, uh, since the pandemic has happened, and um, we, we actually j did just start to kind of move away from that and being very intentional in the Trump administration by making sure there was more access to opportunity. And we started to see wage gaps lower. We started to see more um, um, uh, employment and less unemployment, um, specific records in unemployment. Um, but it still wasn't um, enough because as soon as we did the lockdowns, it kind of like, you know, bankrupted everything that we had. And um, the parts of society where that economic prosperity had not yet reached, you know, it set them further behind. So you're talking about kids that needed access to schools were shut down from their schools. Already access to a failing school, but then you saw how much that school was failing when they were sent home and had to do it virtually. Then parents had, they got to see that like, oh, this is what you're teaching my kid. You're not really teaching them anything. Um, or if the kid was in a, um, a household where you didn't have both parents, or parents were at work, maybe that kid wasn't even going to school or even showing up. And so um, in the wake of that, what you saw is high truancy rates. You saw kids stop, stop going to school, saw an increase of crime, saw more addiction, saw, saw more um, domestic violence. Um, and so um, this is what we're dealing with now, but I, I think there's still promise mm -hmm. um, based off of some of the work Chris, have, Chris and I have done um, and what we talk about in the book. Um, that there is still an opportunity for um, elected leaders, um, civil society leaders, and philanthropists um, to work on the same side, on, on, on a plan um, that can help revitalize underserved communities all across the country. Well, so I want to touch on this. You guys talk a lot in the book about public-private partnership, okay? And for and for some of the viewers of this program, this has actually almost become a bad, well, almost has become a kind of bad word because we have a ton of evidence now of both government working with 
nonprofit organizations, you know, ostensibly civil society, and then also with, uh, you know, big tech to censor Americans, to, to sort of create narratives without, you know, remove certain types of information, promote other types of information. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of an unbelievable thing we've been, we've come to discover, right? And so this is, this is, you know, this is absolutely public-private partnership, but of a sort that maybe that shouldn't exist, <laughs> right? Many people would argue. On the other hand, you're talking about pro public-private partnership of a different sort. So I want to I want to get you to kind of comment on how this will actually what you were talking about, how this will work. So, for this brief moment during the beginning of the pandemic, there was this massive bipartisanship. Um, and when I say massive, we were speaking to folks on both sides of the aisle, organizations that, civic organizations that may have, you know, typically been left of center, right of center, what have you. We would talk to mayors, we would talk to governors, both Democrat and Republican. And ultimately what we were doing was putting together this sort of massive public policy project of, you know, where does the local government fit in? Where does the federal government fit in? How can this nonprofit help and, and what have you? Now granted, there is the bureaucracy of government. But what we saw was that if these groups are working together in an efficient way, then you actually can advance the specific goals of that community. And it ties back to Reconstruction. We delved deeply into the black churches. And the black churches were just so critical for the African-American community um, during Reconstruction because not only were they there to worship and, and pray, but they were educated there and folks were discussing politics and how can they get involved in elected office. So what we're proposing here are the best practices and those best practices can only come about if both sides sit down and they say, all right, we're gonna simplify the system, we're gonna have trust amongst ourselves, we're gonna collaborate, which are all points that we make in the book, but at the end of the day, if you don't have that, then certainly the public-private partnership can become a bad word because it can be corrupted, abused, and all the kinds of things you're talking about. But at the end of the day, it's really about taking these best practices and applying them across the board. And that's where the data and, and the outcomes come from. So this is absolutely fascinating, Chris. You know, this brief moment of bipartisanship that you described, everyone getting together around policy, right? Now, what looking at it from the vantage point, as viewers of this show will know, I've been kind of trying to understand how that whole everyone getting on the same team happened around policy, which ended up being catastrophic. That, that, this is the part. So maybe I want to, if we could talk a little bit about that, like you guys were in the room in some cases, you know, of what was happening over there. And this is, you know, it, it's very rare to be able to, to kind of know what was happening, right? And when I'm talking about, you know, catastrophic, for example, right, we saw small business, right? This was, of course, your area, right? It absolutely decimated. And that gap and the ability of people who are, you know, basically, if we, you, you mentioned this term, pulling up your, yourself by your bootstraps, you, people need more. And today, there's a lot more of that that's going to be needed than was needed, you know, that would have been needed before 2020 as an example. So tell me about what you remember. So as far as the, the policies, you know, all of that legislation starts on the Hill. Um, there was the Paycheck Protection Program, the CARES Act. Um, obviously, the White House uh, had, had a hand in that. Um, and when you look at it from the small business perspective, PPP was the initial lifeline. Um, and that came out and then that rolled out to um, small businesses across the country. 
Um, there were criticisms of the program. You know, there certainly have been criticisms um, with respect to risk metrics and, and fraud and, and things recently. But at the end of the day, that program, according to recipients, you know, helped save small businesses. Was it perfect? Absolutely not. Um, but this was also an incredibly unique situation. So there were policies um, that obviously could have been tightened, could have been better, but you have to remember the uniqueness of this. And, and I bring this up because, look, this was a pandemic, and this is once in a multi-generation event, but we're gonna continue to have economic crises. And if small businesses are impacted in a negative way, that's gonna affect the businesses, the entrepreneurs, the workers, their families, and ultimately their communities. So by having a, a blueprint a plan to address whether it's a pandemic or it's just an economic crisis, which is awful, we really have to be able to focus on that. And, and once again, you know, during these pieces of legislation, there are folks on the Hill, Democrats and Republicans, that are, are trying to negotiate and what have you. And you can't negotiate or you shouldn't negotiate probably out of thin air. If you have something to point to, maybe you disagree with it, but at least that's a place to start. Yeah, I, I can add a bit to that. You know, I'll, I'll go back a, a, a bit further. You know, when this pandemic first happened, you know, you remember the, the Fauci curve, right? Uh, I remember seeing that in real time because, you know, we were, uh, um, we had just did an Opportunity Now Summit um, in February, you know, um, and essentially what that was, we were bringing federal, state, local um, um, sides of government um, and uh, bringing private sector leaders, um, businesses, all for a summit to kind of talk about how do you create opportunity where all the different pieces, you know, was it public safety, economic development, um, was it entrepreneurship, you know, education and workforce, all in one building having a conversation. That's, that's the movement we were pushing. This was just in February. I think we had just went to Treasury at the beginning of March and we had um, a Freedmen's Bank Summit. Um, to talk about capital access. Literally that, um, that, that next week, I went to Cleveland, Ohio, to a prison um, with the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, and we were talking about um, how do we help reform the prisons and help those individuals who are in prison when they leave um, be productive individuals. And then I had some meetings with some elected leaders. As soon as I came back, um, I was told that like some of the folks on the Cavs may have got COVID from someone from the Utah Jazz, um, two, three days later, um, we, we decided to shut down. Um, and I was still called into work um, because we were looking at, um, uh, since they had shut down all the schools, um, places in New York where we can retrofit um, schools into emergency hospitals if we need that. Because you understand the issue at the time was hospital capacity. We wanted to stem the amount of people going to the hospital and, and stemming the spread. And then I remember going to HHS um, and seeing a very empty building, you know, um, because HHS was supposed to lead on pandemic preparedness. You know, um, the infrastructure that they had in place just wasn't um, the emergency infrastructure needed for the pandemic. You know, um, and this is the challenges that we had as a country. We wasn't really ready for a pandemic, even though you had people in that building that had supposedly prepared for it. And so um, we ended up doing a merger between FEMA um, and HHS, which um, put that emergency infrastructure there. We ended up learning that some of the um, uh, you know, uh, supply chain needs, some of the issues that states were having 
um, with hospital capacity. FEMA knew more about them than HHS did. And so um, that, that kind of changed our calculus. But this was about a month in that we've created this new engine towards it. And uh, as a result, we still were like late, you know, because by that time the damage had already been done with some of the shutdowns. And so I remember being called back to the White House to get back to my regular job, which is focusing on underserved communities. And we had this uh, um, uh, agency that we put together this, uh, uh, that we talk about in the book called the White House Opportunity Revitalization Council. Um, there was an executive order that President Trump um, led us with. And that's how we did the Opportunity Now summits and me and Chris started to work together. I had to take that whole infrastructure and focus it on COVID, you know, um, on COVID response because we realized very swiftly that those communities were getting hit hard, the hardest um, with the pandemic and specifically the shutdowns. And so what I had suggested then was like, look, we, we need to kind of um, uh, take this opportunities such as like what Lincoln did and maybe look at this opportunity to kind of right size what we've done in our underserved communities, you know, and make a major investment here uh, with the private sector. And that's honestly what me and Chris fought for, um, for about four or five months, um, a, a real Marshall plan for underserved. Um, we never really um, got, we never convinced people of the critical piece of it. You know, um, another piece that um, I really was fought, fighting for was that, um, that pandemic preparedness, that resiliency. You know, because when I, when I was thinking, you know, war on COVID, I was thinking like, okay, let's see who are all the healthy individuals in each community and let's make sure they stay at work. You know, um, all the folks who aren't as healthy or at risk, those are the folks that should work from home. And then now we're really fighting against the pandemic with the, the power and the uh, continuity of communities. You know, but we, we never got quite there. And I think part of it was because of the political piece. Um, at this, while all of this stuff is going on, we're going into a major presidential election. Um, and I think that's more than ever what really kind of disrupted the, um, you know, us kind of playing in one tent together, you know, because it was a certain point me and Chris were meeting with all these elected officials. And then at one point it became way too politically sensitive to work with us. And um, as a result, you know, then it became a game of politics. Um, and then we started getting into arguments on mask and no mask and all the other political issues around the pandemic, um, mandating vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, shutdowns open. And then it became more political than like looking at what's right. Well, so this is what I find particularly crushing, actually, because, you know, there's actually, I saw a ton of really good policy coming out of the Trump administration. Not that a lot of people know about it because it just simply wouldn't get covered. In, in, in many media, right? And the work you know, that you both did was incredibly important and valuable. And actually, I actually think moving the needle, opportunity zones, one particular, one particular realm I'm thinking of, you know, what, what you've talked about. And then just as this whole pandemic policy came in, it just kind of wiped it all out. And it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's terrible, that, that's terrible. <laughs> one, one thing I will right? add, yeah. add to that, Jan, is that, um, one program that the president implemented um, was the Pledge to America's Workers. And that was a plan, and this is the great thing about this plan. President brought all these top CEOs around the country and basically said, look, we want to create opportunities, we want to create apprenticeships, we want to create you know, jobs for folks. 
And they went back to their companies and figured out ways to do that at their companies or within the local ecosystem. And I believe the number was up to 16 million jobs that had been identified for training. That didn't cost any money to do that. It was the ability of the government to convene and then scale these programs. Once again, the president very involved, cabinet agencies very involved, president's daughter, Ivanka Trump led the, uh, led the effort. And so, but, but it just demonstrates that public-private partnerships can work, but they have to be done efficiently, and the model shouldn't be broken. It should continue to do those kinds of things. This is something I wanted to talk about. A lot of you know, conservatives, I can see you've written the book for a conservative audience, they imagine government programs bad, right? I mean, that's a kind of being a bit glib, but, but the types of programs which you are promoting in the book or that you envision in the book, and frankly, your whole approach from what I can tell, all involve in empowering people to be successful themselves. Right, kind of giving them that, uh, the 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 little bit that they need, right? In, when because they're in one of these underserved, or disadvantaged, or whatever you want to call it, communities, and then sort of be, be able to kind of strike out on their own. In contrast to a lot of these other programs that we think of, right? Like for example, one of the things you talk about in the book quite a bit is what a terrible situation it is when welfare just becomes the thing that you do and becomes a generational thing. And so, but, that, but that's what you think of, that's what a lot of conservatives, they think of government programs. That's what they think, all of it is kind of like that. I mean, it's one of those things of um, incentives, um, perverse incentives. Like if you, if you um, don't have to work, you know, your housing and stuff is paid for, you know, you may incentivize um, a person not uh, actualizing, you know, uh, using their gifts, you know. Um, uh, and I think that what we're advocating for um, is, is just reimagining um, infrastructure for opportunity. But the key word is opportunity. You know, you have to step into it. You know, um, you, know uh, you have to take that opportunity um, uh, and then actualize it yourself. You know, um, this, is, this is completely different than saying that, you know, you're just going to get taken care of. Across the Republican Party, that's what you hear us talk more about. You know, um, rather it's Tim Scott's um, opportunity agenda, you know, um, or uh, um, President Trump talking about the America First agenda, you know. Um, and in many cases, um, we talk about it in jobs because a person's ability to get that first job, you know, puts them in a position to start to chart their course, you know, because once you're making resources for yourself, then you can plan, you know, um, you can make some decisions. Um, and that's what we're talking about reimagining. We realize that um, a child sometimes can't control the environment that they're bought into or brought up in. You know, um, uh, obviously a person could be born and not have both of their parents or not have family. You know, um, and what's the infrastructure we have for that child to ensure that um, we can take that individual um, and he can or she can actualize themselves. Um, and it's that type of infrastructure that we're talking about. Um, or, you know, some things happen. You know, a person loses a father or loses a dad, you know, um, or has um, um, issues come up in their community. You know, um, what we're trying to do is um, create uh, more infrastructure around uh, the things that we haven't traditionally planned for, like not having uh, institutions like churches, you know, um, or not having community or not having a safe community to live in, 
You know, um, these are all things where we're meeting people where they are now. Um, now, let's let's put on top of that, you know, three or four generations. So if you have three or four generations of individuals who've lived in a poor environment, you know, um, hasn't been economically mobile, um, then you throw on top of that um, sexual abuse, you know, uh, um, mental abuse, you know, or uh, drug abuse. You know, those are a lot of layers to peel up out of. And what we're suggesting is that sometimes the government doesn't have the answer to that. You know, um, that they don't have the heart to kind of deal with that person on the individual, that resiliency that would help build a person out of that. You know, um, and what we're suggesting is that uh, this infrastructure of opportunity that we're talking about needs to be led by civil society, you know, um, a community of individuals that do have a heart. Now, what we're saying is that the government does have the ability to scale, though. You know, we can learn from what worked in that community and see if that can scale to another. Um, and, and though it may be different because it may be a rural or urban community, and you can account for those nuances, um, the ability to be able to articulate what, what works for the masses is something that government could do. You know, um, but what we're suggesting is that, that it's not one or the other. It's not necessarily rugged pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, and it's certainly not, you know, absolutely all the government's responsibility. What we're saying is, is meet people where they are, you know, um, and let's take an all above approach um, and create partnerships um, that will help collaborate around this new infrastructure for opportunity. Well, and, and this is John, as you mentioned, this isn't academic for you. You come from what you would exactly call an underserved community and kind of figured out how to navigate your way. Sure. Through, and, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, it, it wasn't perfect. You know, um, I, I was blessed to have a strong father, um, also have a, a strong mother, but, you know, they weren't always in the same household uh, most of my life. Um, I had to, to deal with uh, um, the crack cocaine epidemic, you know, um, just like a lot of families are dealing with the opioid epidemic, you know, um, so I, I empathize with some of the things that happen in life, you know, um, people make mistakes, you know, um, and those mistakes um, affect other people. Um, but then ultimately, you know, you're responsible for how you want to see your life and you have to figure out um, how you can pick yourself up and build. And it takes having people around you that can be encouraging. You know, um, in cases where my parents weren't encouraging, I had a football coach, I had mentors, you know, um, I had my own uh, village or infrastructure around opportunity that helped me become resilient. You know, um, in many cases, that doesn't exist for some people, you know, and they give up hope. Um, and then that, that, that lack of resiliency can become very dark, you know, um, where you don't care about your life, you don't care about others' lives, you know, um, and then you, you have anger and then violence comes out of that. Um, and what we're trying to do is um, uh, build back, peel back those layers, you know, onto the human level and help people actualize. Because ultimately, if we as society um, do nothing and keep people at the margins, you know, that comes back to us because we also all live in a country together. You know, and so you can neglect a, a, a kid, but that kid becomes an adult, and that neglect, ne, ne, neglected adult um, could become a very dark individual that can do things that affect society. And so that's why we're all in this together. Um, and so that dark age that you're talking about um, is going to be on us um, as individuals, a community of individuals to help build us out of that. And I think 
you know, and Jaron can speak to this really well when you look at something like the First Step Act, because you had very liberal Democrats and you had conservative Republicans working together. And I will tell you this, when I came over to the White House, and I give Jaron a ton of credit for this, when President Trump signed an executive order back in June of 2020 during the height of the riots, um, we had groups from the left, community groups, and you know, I guess most of the law enforcement unions at the table. And at the end of that process, they agreed on 90 or 95% of what ultimately went into that executive order. And that came from the work that Jaron and some of our other colleagues had done to really get that trust during the, um, the development of the First Step Act. And that, that comes from the methodology that Chris and I talk about in the book, you know, um, being intentional, building trust, um, collaboration and partnerships, creating outcomes, and then studying what works. You know, um, when the First Step Act came about, we knew that in states like Georgia and Texas, um, they had reformed their prison systems in a way that lowered recidivism, reduced crime, and ultimately saved their budgets because they spent less on the prisons. And that's the infrastructure or idea that we used to come about with the First Step Act. Um, but then when we dealt with Congress, we had to deal with um, very um, um, tough on crime individuals um, from the past that just wanted to lock everyone up and throw away the key. Then you had other people that deemed the whole um, justice system as racist. And so as a result, let's just get rid of prisons and everything to begin with and have no accountability individuals. And so um, in between that, you know, um, is individuals who are deserving of a second chance, you know, and individuals that probably need to be in prison a little bit longer um, for our public safety. Um, but we had to navigate that practical reality. Um, and in doing that, uh, it took us um, uh, getting coalitions from the ground that represent the families and then coalitions that represented law enforcement and being able to bring them together to say, hey, what is the smart way to reform our system in a way that protects public safety but allows for second chances and creates a more, more robust system? Um, and then we were ultimately able to get almost 90% of the Congress or 80% of the Congress to support that. Um, but it wasn't because the Congress wanted to do that. It's because the people that they represented supported that. Mm -hmm. The law enforcement groups, the families, the communities supported that. And so that's how you really kind of push our elected members and hold them accountable because ultimately they're supposed to represent us. We live in a representative government. Um, and that's the movement that we're on. We're on a movement that like, how do we empower people? Um, we want to educate people. That's why we wrote the book, that like these things can happen. You don't have to wait for reform or opportunity, but let's work on this together. Let's reimagine what this looks like and, uh, and hold ourselves accountable um, with the actions that we want from our elected officials to make uh, our country the, the country that it can be. Listening to both of you speak right now, I'm just, it's fully dawning on me how relatively short a time period all this was from, you know, pandemic policy being implemented in March of 2020, and then the BLM, the, you know, riots and so forth, and then the election. I mean, it's all just, you know, incredibly, incredibly short period of time. I mean, just tons of what you might even call shock and awe. I mean, I, it, it's almost hard to fathom being in the government during this time. You're, 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 you're laughing, but yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm only laughing because like, it just makes me uh, more dependent on God. You know, God is uh, funny. 
you know, um, and that, you know, no, none of us ever saw this. And, and I'd certainly, growing up, uh, African-American kid from Cleveland, Ohio, didn't see myself working for a Republican president, you know. Um, but um, all my life experience, experiences prepared me to kind of be in that position, um, to be able to give a different perspective. You know, um, and and that's the the funny thing about life. You don't know where, on uh, why or when or why God kind of created an avenue for you, and then it clicks, like, oh, this is why that happened. Um, this is what all of this meant. Um, and then ultimately, you know, um, when I when I left the administration and, and had children, you know, um, it made me understand the work that I did in service even more. There's no time to waste. That's why, like, we decided to write this book because we think it's important to be intentional right now um, because we want to see our, our country, um, you know, be passed on to our children and be even better than what we had. Um, in order to create that environment, we have to be intentional ourselves about being the change that we want to see in the world. You know, when Reconstruction <clears throat> ended, um, Grant had, had left office and Rutherford Hayes uh, had won the presidency and there was a, a dispute in the election and ultimately um, there was an agreement that troops would leave the South um, and then all of uh, Congress would confirm that Hayes had won and that was essentially the end of Reconstruction. The reason we're doing this now is that the time period that you're talking about, it was traumatic for so many communities. I mean, I remember walking into the White House at our campus at like five o'clock in the morning, we were writing the executive order and seeing tanks, um, obviously the riots had been going on, you saw the destruction and what have you. And the reality is uh, we have to do it now. In other words, both sides need to come together and listen to the voices that Jaron's talking about. The circumstances, as tragic as they've been to this point, when you talk about you know, the deaths from COVID and you talk about the destruction of certain communities and small businesses that have closed and all of these things that have happened, the reality is we have the ability to reverse that. Mm -hmm. And we think this plan can really help with that. It strikes me that the First Step Act is a kind of a model of success in this, what we're discussing here. Is it, are, do those coalitions still exist? Oh, do yes. those people, like, do there, are these people still working together? Or was it a, you know, one-off miracle? <laughs> it says, no, because when you look at the right. discourse, you know, it seems to be the discourse in mainstream media and social media and so forth, you would seem there's very little middle ground. Well, the, the, the coalition, that coalition is still working. Um, I mean, honestly, it, it, it's, it's, it's not the same environment. You know, um, we had some other things that happened. I mean, I, I look at, you know, rogue DAs um, who aren't holding certain criminals uh, accountable um, to the defund movement um, makes it harder for a coalition to articulate the promise of smart on crime policies. You know, the defund the police movement was a, was a political movement, you know, um, and that's hurt. Um, especially underserved communities that need police officers. You know, um, this whole movement to uh, take a blanket approach with violent offenders um, on accountability is, is, is a political movement. It's not about keeping communities safe. You know, <clears throat> so all of that makes it harder for a coalition like ours 
um, because when people are hurt um, by our reform of the criminal justice system, that impacts people. Like people can lose their life, you know, um, and you have family members that are victims, and those are those are hard hard things that we went back to trust on, and so <clears throat> in this environment that's made it difficult. But yes, the coalition is still working. The coalition is also still working on opportunity zones. Opportunity zones has a lot of promise. Did a lot of uh, great work. Um, Fifty billion dollars worth of new investments in over three thousand um, different zones throughout the country, um, but. Uh, there's still more work to do there. You know, there, there are certain areas where they didn't leverage it the right way. There's um, other uh, parts of the legislation that weren't passed that would focus on jobs um, and small business growth or affordable housing. That wasn't in the original bill, so we don't have that data to talk about the efficacy of the program, so there's still work to do there. Um, and Chris and I haven't um, stopped one day with leaning into each of these issues. I mean, we talk, I, mean, I don't think there's been a week that's gone by that I haven't talked to Chris in the last three years. Um, and uh, we're constantly at work, um, constantly on watch on these issues. Um, what we're doing is inviting more people to grow that coalition um, because it, it's gonna take more effort um, than, than, than ever um, before um, post-pandemic to kind of pick up these pieces and uh, rebuild our country to the place where it, could, where it could be. Well, John Smith, Chris Pilkerton, such a pleasure to have had you on. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you all for joining John Smith and Chris Pilkerton and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.